I always say, you don't want to throw a kid in 10 feet of water if they can't swim, but you better start helping them get into the water. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Steve Maraboli. Life doesn't get easier or more forgiving. We get stronger and more resilient. My guest today, Dr. Robert Brooks, is a leading expert on resilience. He is a doctor of philosophy, serves on the faculty of Harvard Medical School, and has authored or co-authored over 19 books. During the past 40 years, Dr. Brooks has also lectured nationally and internationally to thousands of parents, educators, mental health professionals, and business people on topics pertaining to motivation, resilience, family relationships, the qualities of effective leaders and executives, and balancing our personal and professional lives. Dr. Brooks, welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. So not to act like a psychologist, because <laughs> I only play one on TV, but I, I always find it's helpful to start with childhood. Uh, you know, you've obviously done a lot of work with, with children. Um, sort of As an expert, how would you describe your own childhood personality and <laughs> temperament? Well, since you asked about also we're going to talk about resilience, yeah. I'll bring up right away in all the research that has been done about resilience, like why do some people seem to be more resilient than others? When they interview these people who have overcome adversity and they ask them, what do you think was one of the most important things to help you overcome adversity? They always will say there was at least one adult along the way who truly believed in them and stood by them. And you'll see why I'm bringing this up to answer your question. And there was a psychologist, he died about 25 years ago. He was one of my role models, Bob, Julius Siegel. He called that person a charismatic adult in a child's life. Uh, I almost wish he hadn't used the word charismatic because it has different meanings to different people, but his definition is poetic. He said, it's a person from whom a child or adolescent gathers strength. Now, why do I give that background? As I look back at my childhood, I was relatively happy, and I could say I had parents, both of whom were charismatic adults. They were both immigrants from Eastern Europe. Uh, they both were extremely supportive. I'm the youngest of four sons. Uh, they they really encouraged me to try different things and do different things. Now, when I was growing up, I wasn't saying they're charismatic adults, but as I look back, they were very supportive, encouraging could be disciplinarians in the most positive sense of the word. But I always felt that they encouraged me to think about different things. Now, one of the signature moments of my life was very different. And I know looking back, it played a role in my interest in resilience. Uh, when I was 16 years old, I had a brother who was 25. He was in the Air Force. And I'll never forget this day. How could you forget it? When we got a call that his plane, he he was on a cargo plane, his plane crashed off Guam and uh, his body was never recovered. There was no in any way service, if you will, uh, no funeral. And it was at that moment, as I look back, that I got very interested in several things. How does one deal with death? How does one recover from it? But there was something else. My parents had a great deal of difficulty. They were very loving, but it was so sudden and he had just gotten married that they couldn't even talk about it. They didn't want to talk about it. 
And as I look back, what happened was I was in high school and they all, the teachers knew my brother. And uh, there was one teacher. He was also like a school counselor, Mr. Cohen. And he asked me to help him like once a week for about an hour in the office. Looking back, he was like my first therapist uh, there. Yeah. And uh, the notion of charismatic adult, as I look back, was very, uh, well, the best way of saying he could fit that role. And it took my parents about a year. As much as I wanted them to talk about my brother, his name was Erwin, they could not. And Mr. Cohn really, in his sweet, lovable way, as I'm helping out in the office, he talked about sometimes things are very difficult and it doesn't mean your parents don't love you or whatever, but the loss was so great. And years later, as I looked at resilience, I realized something. They handled it the best way they could to be able to stay together, be loving parents. It was almost like they had to put off to the side his death when they interacted with us. And some people might say that wasn't very resilient. I found that looking back, it was the best way they could handle it, even though I might have wanted them to handle it in a different way. So look, I would say my childhood was relatively happy. You know, there but that was clearly a formative turn that probably led you oh, in yeah. the direction of this work. Yeah. You know, years later, uh, one of my more recent books is called Reflections on Mortality, Insights into Meaningful Living, which I had the good fortune. There's this minister in, in Houston who I became very good friends with. And in that, the chapter I wrote for the book, one of them, I talk a great deal about um, that experience uh, and, you know, that really probably played a role in helping me to think about, even though I wasn't very conscious of it helping me to think about how does one cope with certain situations uh, that are so difficult and so painful. I know one of the ways I coped was I became an editor on the school yearbook and the essay I wrote for the yearbook had to do with dealing with death. And uh, I, looking back, there were different avenues I took. At the time, I didn't think about it that much. I don't want to jump the gun on this too much because I want to talk about parenting a lot and we'll, okay. we'll, get, we'll okay. get to that. I actually surprised when you said like the common thing of of this charismatic, you know, person. I I almost thought more you'd say there was this person that pushed them or there was this person that challenged them. I guess what's the difference between someone who is charismatic and overly permissive, right? Because I think that those okay. yeah. A wonderful question because <laughs> I am laughing now. In all my seminars, you know, I'll bring up charismatic adult and I say, but here's the important question I get. I want to be a charismatic adult, say, for my children. What do I say or do? And I say that's very important. Yeah. Uh, and that's what led me, uh, and I know we'll get probably more into this, that's what led me to think about what does a charismatic adult say or do? Uh, and I really had to define it a lot. And I'll get back to the question because parents would ask me, teachers would ask me. I've had business leaders who say, I want to be a charismatic adult for my staff. I wrote two books with the head of a financial institute who said, when I heard you speak, I wondered, what can a financial advisor do so his or her clients see them as a, me as a charismatic adult? But sticking with parents, because the concept is universal yeah. in any relation. Sticking with parents is just to give you one example. I became very interested in different parenting styles and what fit most with a charismatic adult. And 
there's a great deal of literature. I'll just go over it. They really have defined four different kinds of parents. One was authoritarian. They always tell you what to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there's no leeway at all. Then there was and the Angela lady. Duckworth did a lot of work uh, in this area. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people have. I mean, this goes back to the 50s. Yeah. Then there was the laissez-faire parent. Then there was the neglectful parent whose kids had the worst outcome, by the way. But then there was what they call the authoritative, not the authoritarian. And the authoritative parent, as I read the research, most matched what I would see in a charismatic adult. Is this a two by two matrix? Like, is it, does it have very, yeah, no. put it in there. I, I haven't really as like much. Like challenging I, and supporting as a two by two or something like that. Yeah. Right. You could easily put it into that. Maybe you could even have a bigger. So laissez-faire is the not, can laissez-faire, there are a lot that are supporting, but not challenging at all. Right. That's right. Or with a laissez-faire, they don't hold their kids accountable or responsible. And you said that had the worst outcome? No. Oh, okay. Ne- the neglectful. Neglect. And then, so neglect is they don't care and they don't do anything. They're right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Because laissez-faire could be very loving. All right, but now I want to know, does laissez-faire or authoritarian have better outcome? I I think the, uh, I'm trying to think of the research. <laughs> I think they really both didn't have great outcomes. The authoritarian had kids who were very angry. Yes, but successful. Were, <laughs> well. Or I guess not successful. It, yeah achieving but probably a lot of wounds around that yeah you know i've always seen children and adults in my practice so when you said successful i've had people come in who their resume looks very successful and miserable uh but even just to give you an example the laissez-faire or the parent sometimes which fits with that you know uh, the personal rescues the the kids or so they don't hold the kids accountable what some adults have told me who I've seen in therapy with a parent like that is they really feel that the parent didn't care enough to set limits. I mean, that's one of the other things that comes up. But they don't have that revelation until they're older. Oh, I, I, I would say that what they may have, because I also work with kids, is there's a certain anger there or disappointment that later they could look back and translate into the feeling yeah. they have now uh, on that. The authoritative, getting back to that, is a parent who sets limits, who holds kids accountable. Also, though, and I hope this doesn't uh, you know, sound like a parent, shows unconditional love, yeah. that they love kids for who they are and not what they want them to be, which yeah, is a big That's a key distinction, them. yeah. I can tell you on the, on the soccer fields where you and I live, I can see that that playing oh, out. Yeah, yes. It's like, is this about <laughs> you or is this about your kid? <laughs> right. Having co- we live in the same town. Having yeah. coached where my sons were growing up, having coached them in basketball for eight years, yeah. I learned very quickly of uh, you know about that. So, so there are certain qualities. But what your question really touched on, and if I'm running on too much, you could interrupt me at any time. What your question also touched on for me when and when I get the question, what does a charismatic adult say or do? When I started first looking at resilience, a lot of it in my mind was you overcome adversity and, you know, you achieve things. And then as I was doing more research and looking at other people's research, I said, I'm missing a very big part of what resilience is. And what it is, is what we now call it maybe social emotional factors. Yeah. Like one of the most important parts of being resilient is when you feel you're making a positive difference in the life of someone else. I did research about this 
And even during the pandemic, which, you know, in some sense is still going on, one of the things I said in all my webinars and my consultations is people will be less uh, stressed if actually they feel that they can do something. And one of the things they could do is that's why I was loves hearing about stories of kids raising money for food banks or first responders, yeah. because one of the things that I think a charismatic adult does is to help a child feel he or she has some control over some things in the world. In all of my writings, I use a concept called personal control. And I first really thought about this many years ago when I read one of what is one of my Bibles, uh, I've read it seven times now, is Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Me. Yeah. Some of your listeners, I'm sure, know he was a psychiatrist. It's a must uh, read, yeah. A Holocaust survivor. But he says things in there that got me to think about what parents can say or do. He says things like, even in the concentration camps, there were a few brave men and women who would give away their last morsel of food, I almost have this memorized, to someone who was even more hungry than they were. They proved the Nazis could take anything away from you, but the last of the human freedoms to choose your attitude and response in any given set of circumstances. I took that, I've read it like now about seven times, first read in graduate school. It had an impact, but not like it had as I started looking at resilience. I started saying, if you're a charismatic adult, how do you help a kid start to feel that? How do you help a kid feel, start feeling a sense of purpose and meaning? That it's not just achievement, because too many theories I was reading about resilience had to do with achievement. They didn't talk about the relationship. It's hard for people to be resilient unless they have had adults who truly believed in them. Yeah, and you know that overlines with one of my favorite things, Frankel's framework, I think, aligns a lot with Jim Collins' Stockdale yes. paradox, right? Which I think... To me, this is you could use these same things for leadership. Like, what's the mm -hmm. leadership side in the Stockdale paradox, which I've written about a lot, is similar. Like, is it was always sort of a level of hope and optimism in future, but not avoiding the brutal realities of the situation. Exactly. Because that's I'll never forget. And you know, when he interviewed Collins, interviewed Stockdale, who was a prisoner of war for seven years, he said, you know, who didn't who died in in prison and didn't make it out first? And he said, that's easy. That's the optimist. And he's and Collins was so confused. And he said, what do you mean the optimist? Like, don't. He's like, no, no, no. I, I was optimistic that I would get out, but I also understood the reality and, and it wasn't going to be tomorrow or the next day. And it was almost the same thing as Frankel, where the people who thought they were going to out at Christmas and then Christmas came and their heart was broken. They kind of died of a broken right. heart, right? Yeah, well, what was interesting, because you wrote an article about the Stockdale Paradox. I wrote my monthly article four months later about it. And I, I, when, I, when I read Optimist, and there's now research to support this, it's not wasn't really the optimist. It was the unrealistic optimist. Yeah, yeah. And some people did studies to look at a level of optimism, how realistic is it or how not. And I think if Stockdale, you know, was here, we, he would say the same thing. It, it, it was, a, yeah, you know, it was un, unbridled. And look, I think that's exactly for leaders. You see. You see mm -hmm. people, particularly in what's going on today, telling, oh, the company's fine otherwise. Then they get blindsided mm -hmm. by a layoff, and then that trust is gone. And similarly, if you told people it's horrible, terrible, it'll never get better, well, what's going to get them to go to work every day, right? That's right. Yeah, both both of those extremes don't, you know, have real consequences, you know. I totally agree with that. But I, yeah, and I agree that, you know, some work like Victor Frankl or even the work on resilience and the, the work of that charismatic person who yeah. supports you and encourages you 
is not just in parenting, it's it's throughout life. So taking it up a level, how do you actually define resilience? It's it's a wonderful question because one of my favorite seminars is we go on seminar of resilience across the lifespan. I basically start with infancy through our senior years. And I don't want to overly complicate it because uh, sometimes it's uh, confused with what they call recovery, sometimes post-traumatic growth. The definition for me, and I don't want to overly simplify it because then I elaborated on it in my books, is basically to cope effectively in the face of adversity. And I've often said resilient children and adults see problems as things to be solved rather than overwhelmed by. So I say one of the most important things is we have to think about in in any organization, but especially in parenting, how do we help kids to start to feel that they have, you know, the skills to deal with uh, particular problems? The one thing I want to add, though, is what I've also added to that is that in solving problems, we're not just thinking, uh, it's a point I made before, of achieving things. It's also how do we involve kids in charitable activities that give them a sense of purpose? Yeah. How do we look for their An agency. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I'll just throw this in now. I've often been asked, what's your theory of motivation? Yeah. I've, I've been asked, if you go into an organization, what do you look at? When you go into a school, what do you look at? And there are many, but one of the ones I've most uh, subscribed to uh, is uh, the one developed by two psychologists at the University of Rochester, Richard Ryan and Edward D.C., and they are prominently featured in one of my favorite books. And I know you've interviewed Daniel Pink, his book, Drive. Yeah, that that, that book was the formative book in, in terms of building our culture at our company. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love I loved it because it just yeah. autonomy, I think, mastery, purpose. I'll, you know, I remember that. Yeah. Well, there was there was actually four. There, not all were captured in the book. They said if you want people to be motivated and they could help them be resilient. One, they had to feel a sense of belonging or being welcome. Yeah. Two is the theory is called self-determination theory. They have right. to feel their voices being heard. Three was what I call competence. And I've always said, if a person is going through life and cannot identify their passions or what I call their islands of competence, we're going to have a problem. And the fourth, which was really added later in DC's model, was the sense of purpose. And so I say, when I go into any organization or school, that's what I'm looking at. Does this organization, does its leadership, does any person coming in, do they feel welcome and connected? Do they feel their voice is being heard? Do they feel that people are not only looking at their deficits, but their strengths and their beauty? And then when they walk away from their office or whatever, do they feel they've made a difference in that regard? If you can capture those four, even to a le- greater or lesser degree, that person is going to be much more resilient. So I'm, I, I want to read you two quotes. Uh, they're both from, just get your reaction to them. They're both from Elizabeth Edwards. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, she wrote a book basically while she was dying from cancer and then also being fully embarrassed by her husband, John Edwards, kind of affair and wrote a pretty authentic book. And and one of the, the second one is a, a, one I love, I used in a book because I think it's really interesting around, like, if you think about grid and like where you, where you need to be resilient, where you don't. But the first one is resilience is accepting your new reality, even if it's less good than the one you had before. Yeah. Well, I think what is, is there is being very realistic. You know what, when you just read that and I thought about, there was research done in Israel and this was the research. They were looking at senior citizens, 
and, and some who no longer able to, you know, do all that they were able to do before. And they found these two Israeli psychologists looked at some remained very hopeful, hopeful and optimistic, and some did not. Now, what I'm going to say is going to sound so simple when I bring it up in workshops. People <laughs> say, well, that makes sense, doesn't it? And they want, what is the difference between these two people? And it's what Elizabeth Edwards said. The ones who used to run five miles now say, you know, I can't run five miles, but I could walk three miles or yeah. four miles. What they do is they accept the reality. It's basically, you know, what Viktor Frankl says, your attitude and response. So there are certain things you have to change. I know I used to, when I was younger, really jog five miles. Now it's more walking. You accept the certain reality. So in one sense, you may say it's not as what I was able to do in the past. But in another sense, what you're right. doing is you're basically saying it's my attitude and response to things that plays a major role in how resilient I am. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And, and to me, like I, I've said this a lot in different ways, but that was the defining characteristic to me that of businesses that made it through COVID and didn't. The yeah. ones on March 15th or the restaurants who were like old business model, not going to work. Mm -hmm. We need to mm -hmm. go sign up for online things and deliver wholesale. And other ones were like, oh, we're going to wait for whatever it was to come back, right? It was just, we are going to wait for old reality. And, and other ones just said, this is new reality. <laughs> and, right. and look, there's still people ignoring the reality that people don't want to go back to the office. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, and they are they are waiting for them to come back and they're not coming. <laughs> uh, so. uh, no, I, but you know, a key concept of resilience, uh, your comments are just triggering so much. Yeah. <laughs> it, again, it may sound so simple, it's flexibility. 
And flexibility means that you have to, just like Elizabeth Edwards said, you have to really be flexible in being able to shift at times, facing what is the reality here. You know, it's like I gave some webinars for teachers and I talk about, I've always talked about how do you help a kid feel welcome in a classroom? And the teachers, these were when it was all remote, said, how can you do it? Well, I suggested just different ways. The first few minutes of the class, forget about teaching academics or whatever. How do you welcome kids? And one of the things teachers found very helpful, it sounds so simple, get feedback from kids. Say to kids, this is all new. I really want to hear from you what's working and what's not working. And teachers would call me and say, that sounded so simple, but it's really working at this particular point. Kids are feeling more comfortable, even on the screen. So, so we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But, okay. so, so I'll give you the second quote. And actually, I, I didn't use this quote, but I used this principle in a discussion with my son recently around sort of quitting. Like, you know, mm-hmm. we kind of have a don't quit, but but it was actually on a something that he should quit mindset. And so I actually thought this was always a really interesting thing that she said. So being part of resilient is deciding to make yourself miserable over something that matters or making yourself miserable over something that doesn't matter. Yeah, that's a very interesting. I don't know if I would have. <laughs> I, I understand it. I, I, You know what? It's like something. Well, I think her point was there's some stuff we need to be less resilient. Like in order to care about a couple of things and want to plow through, there's some other stuff you got to you got to drop. Like you got to just give it up. Right. It, it, OK, that that interpretation for me is is very good. Now, one of the questions that I often get as a psychologist and people I've seen in therapy is. And and it touches on several things. So uh, when should one give up something? See, some people say I give up things too easily and I interview them and yeah, they give up too easily. Others may stick with things too long. And sometimes it's a real tightrope we walk on in that regard. Look, I had to learn after a while to say, no, you know, I I thought that I should never, especially when I started, I was at McLean Hospital and also private practice. I had to learn that I had to start giving up some things that- that I just had no time for. And it was taking away time from the uh, the family uh, there. So they weren't even happy things anymore because I felt very stressed about it. So I certainly understand that. Do you want to tell me with your son, though? You said you brought something up. Oh, well, you know, it was just like he he actually really didn't want to quit something and he's doing too much stuff. And we were like, Mm -hmm. I, I think you just don't want to quit it out of principle rather than it's something that you actually want to do or care about. And you're clearly overloaded. So I, you know, I, that that quote sort of came to mind where it's like, generally, I am not encouraging my kids to be quitters. And like, you know, again, you start a season, you finish the season. If you don't want to do it again, you don't have to do it again. I mean, I that was Angela Duckworth's thing, too. I think, again, which is like, you know, we paid for it. You get through it. I'm not going to make you do something miserable. But yeah, I was like, look, it's, there's good quitting. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I, well, you know, whether we call it quitting or not, I, as I said, I learned over the years, there's just so many committees I could be on. You know, you at first you start your career, you feel very flattered. You know, the, I remember the Children's Museum called me about a couple of projects, but then a, f- a point is reached where you really have to look within yourself and say, but this is really taking time away from other things. And in one sense, I did leave a couple of boards. I, I never really thought of it as quitting so much as really wanting to lead, uh, you know, have much more time for other activities like right. my family that were very important. Yeah. Well, that to me, that's the matters or, or, or doesn't mm-hmm. matter. All right. So now now on to, I think, a topic we share mutual um, interest in. So 
there's clearly been this massive rise in society and anxiety, uh, both both in adults, I think, but more prevalent in young adults and, and teenagers and children. I know you've written a lot about helping to keep children from worrying. So sort of two-part question, how should parents, you know, keep, or, or leaders, you know, again, with now layoffs and keep people from worrying, like what are strategies about that? And then I'm curious, what do you think the causes of this? There's definitely some more societal shifts going on. I, I have my guesses. I, I think parenting style and technology are, are, are definitely two factors in it. But I, I'd be curious to sort of uh, dive in on sort of both those realms. Yeah. Well, first of all, I have no hesitation saying, having been in the field now like 45 years, that there does seem to be much more anxiety and It doesn't even have to be from my perspective. I get like it seems like every month or so something from the American Psychological Association and not the survey that shows the increase uh, um, at all ages, as you said, Bob, in terms of anxiety and depression. And, you know, there I think just a lot of different factors play a role. I know some people say it's all the Internet and all of this, this. I just think there's so many more influences on kids and uh, than just what parents is doing. Uh, I think there's such a lot of uncertainty. COVID certainly magnified that uh, in terms of, you know, I read these firsthand accounts of kids who really feel like they have no anchors anymore. And they don't, and, and many parents as well felt very anxious. So there are different factors. The question I've been getting is how do you help kids what do you do from the time a kid is even born i mean i've gotten these questions how do you lessen anxiety in kids and what i resort to if that's the best word is when i started writing my books about resilience and i've written a few both in resilience in adults and kids i started asking this question which was a guiding principle for me how does a resilient child or adult see the world differently from one who is not how do they see themselves differently because it's one thing to say, let's help kids be resilient or help kids be, you know, or adults be resilient. But what do you actually say and do? So sticking with parents right now, I started, this was a very exciting part of my career, by the way, this a number of years ago, I started looking at the research about what is it that seems to help kids be more optimistic, seems better problem solvers and whatever. Less news and social media have to be, I know that's not going to be the answer, but that's got to be part of the equation. Oh, I, <laughs> Look, we know that the issue is to what extent can you control all of that? Right. I mean, I feel terrible after watching the news for two hours. You know, you get into an election cycle, you watch it, it's like a drug, and then you just feel terrible after watching two hours of news. Do you know there's even, I wrote an article about this like in 2016, a new disorder, election anxiety disorder. You know, I, I don't know. Well, think it's not it's- even, right? It's not even that you can't turn on TV. Look, we're, you, you're in the same market I am in. I'm watching the negative New Hampshire ads all day long. Oh, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm in Massachusetts. Like I, I just, know. I, I, you know, it's, 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 I'm trying really, to understand the strategy behind that, by the way. Yeah, like I, I, which interesting to me, I was watching once I was watching those, but in between there were these ads in the same election. This person is terrible. Uh, this person, whatever. I know for myself what I've done and I've suggested as parents is I really started limiting the, watching TV except for some sports, because I love sports. I really more and more was uh, reading the news online or, you know, we get still the Boston Globe on that regard. So I think as parents, we certainly have to think about limiting 
as especially when kids are younger, what they can watch and whatever. And I don't want to sound now like authoritarian, but I think we have to. Uh, That's you know, authoritative, not authoritarian. No, I don't <laughs> want to sound like authoritarian. Yeah, that is authoritative. No, authoritative. I was using your word. Sorry. Yeah, authoritative yeah. <laughs> would be some a parent who says we're not going to watch the yeah. news because right now it's whatever. Uh, so they really explain things to kids, not over explain, but explain things uh, to kids. Why I use the concept of resilient mindset in a number of books is I wanted to convey to people that there are certain characteristics, mindset, we use the word mindset, assumptions and expectations, that when you're raising your kids or when you're running an organization, these are things you should really think about. Look, right up there was empathy. I've been writing about empathy for a while, and then Daniel Goleman made it a critical part in his book, Emotional Intelligence and yeah. Social Intelligence. Empathy was a critical part of emotional intelligence. I, I bring this up. I started to say to parents, and it could be to anyone, I started saying, do this exercise. Write down all the words you hope your children will use to describe you. Or you could keep it to six, seven words. What words do you hope they will use to describe you? Second question. And I'm only mentioning this, Bob, because so many parents said they really started to think about this. What do you intentionally say and do on a regular basis so they're likely to use the words you hope they use? And the next question was, what words do you think they will use? Hmm. And where I'll tell you, some business leaders and financial advisors, when I ask those questions, how would you like your, your employees to just customer? Them? Yeah, customer. I, I said to be a charismatic adult, you've got to start to think of this. Now, it, w- during COVID, I asked I asked parents this question 15 years from now, if I interviewed your kids and asked them to describe you during COVID, what would they say? Because I became very concerned that some parents were so stressed out that they weren't modeling resilience for their kids. And there's got to be something in this around again. Let's we get into snowplow parenting, but like I, I know you're you're dancing around this, but like there is a fundamental shift in how people are parenting their kids the last twenty years, and I think the outcomes are pretty horrible if you're measuring outcomes. And I look when COVID hit. And I think back to talking to different employees and and sort of their reactions and whatever, and who was dealing with real serious problems. And, and this didn't come up in what you're saying before. So I'm curious. And who was sort of completely losing it, even though they had food over their head, a job, shelter, and they were watching the news, you know, all day long. It was people that had struggle in their lives. It was people that came from difficult situations. And this was just not the first time that they had dealt with something that was hard. That that seemed to be a the telltale. I remember someone telling me who just came from horrible childhood experience, which I, I had known from a different context. The kids are at home. They had needs. The spouse was leaving. And then they were like, yeah, we'll figure it out. And this other person's like losing their mind and has no kids and no family. And I, I don't know. It's just a stark difference. Oh, yes. The research shows the kids who did the most poorly during COVID, and there's still COVID there, but especially yeah. during the first year or so, had already pre-existing, if you will, conditions. Yeah. I mean, I know a number of families and kids who have done very well, even with all that has gone on. The other issue is, of course, even if we think of resilience as coping effectively, some people, unfortunately, if you lost a parent or you lost... Yeah, well, absolutely. This is, I'm talking about the real versus the staring outside in the scary abyss. Okay, let me complicate this just a little, though. (laughs) Yeah. So. 
you know, what you're talking about is the kids who were doing well before, they seem to handle it better. Just oh, these, these, sorry, these are adults. The adults okay, who had adults. more traumatic experiences as kids. Right. That, but that's what I was going to say. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So they come from situations where they are, are already much more vulnerable. Now, they may not have seen that way, but then something so unpredictable comes comes up. But, you know, the other thing is, and I don't want to complicate this totally, but I started getting questions from parents. This was well before COVID. Questions like, Bob, I basically parent each of my kids the same way, which is you can't really because yeah, yeah. they have different needs. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Why is one child so confident and one not so confident in my book, Raising Resilient Children? And a lot of my work, we also know the following. Some kids and I don't want to confuse this more, but some kids come into the world already yeah. being able to be much more empathic, much more resilient and whatever. There's such a large population uh, and research of the population in terms of the temperaments of kids, whatever. But I I say that only for the following reason. I started saying to parents, never judge another person's parenting unless you walked in their shoes. Yeah. Because there are some parents who are very courageous doing the best they can, but they have kids who they are called difficult temperament. The reason I bring this in, I always say biology is not destiny. Sigmund Freud said that, I think, once. But what I mean by that is even, and I want to bring this up for parents who do have some temperamentally difficult kids, that even if your child is more anxious, some kids are born more anxious. We know that. There's research. That doesn't mean we cannot help them. Else I wouldn't have written about resilience, but I want to bring that up as well. Right. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But I was just going to say I, this, you know, the someone I know who's talking about this years ago uh, has said this quote, and I've heard a lot since. I think parenting shifted from preparing the kid for the path to preparing the path for the kid, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like everyone get out of the way of, of and it went from helicopter to snowplow. Yes. And 
I, I, we, we are teaching kids at a young age when the stakes are ostensibly low, that failure is a bad thing. I mean, if you know the school system is going on near us, like the message is if you get anything less than an A or A minus, you are not, you cannot apply to elite university, even though you're going to specialize in one thing and be really good at one thing and not the rest of the thing. So you have to be good at all of this stuff. And your parents move all the obstacles and they go yell at the teachers and, you know, they're on the, te- they're on your, the kid side, not the teacher side. And then the kids are super stressed out and then they go to college and all that stuff. And then here's what, then they go in the real world yeah. and someone tells them they're not awesome or their work wasn't right. good and they completely fall apart. <laughs> I totally, I, but I will underscore what you just said, because yeah. then that gets to, well, what could parents do differently? Because, you know, when you, the snow plow. Well, the school system. I was just, just, well, oh, the school system. We could spend a whole other show <laughs> on the work I've done with schools because I think schools could be. Fail a when you're 12 years old. Fail when you're 13. Like, get used to failing. Like, yeah. my, my oldest son, Rich, who started his own company and is very successful today. He did no work in school in the 8th, 9th, 10th, and 11th grades. He thought homework was optional. He had his own path. That was sort of like me. Yeah. Well, I said, okay, and look how successful uh, you are in that regard. But when you bring up snowplow, I think one of the issues is I always say you don't want to throw a kid in 10 feet of water if they can't swim, but you better start helping them get into the water there. And that's a balancing act. I think some parenting, they rescue their kids too much. And there was uh, my sister-in-law's retired school teacher in an affluent uh, town in Westchester County. She would actually have, it's your point, Bob. She would have parents come in and say to her, can't you give my kid a, a, if he got a C or could give a B or an A, because he'll look better in his college application. And my sister-in-law, and I'm saying this in a very loving way, is a cookie said, I'd love to give him an A if he deserved it. But when I've spoken to adults who had parents like that, you know what they tell tell me? This is with some, you know, we talked about before, looking back, what that parent was communicating, you can't handle it yourself. Yeah. So I have to come in and rescue you. And when you said before about, I think a major part of resilience is being comfortable enough with making mistakes, knowing they're going to be setbacks, but also you have a problem-solving attitude, you're hopeful and optimistic, and you say, I have to figure out, I know this may sound so simplistic, I have to figure out what did I just learn from this situation. Too many kids in today's world, you know, they get a B and not an A, they start falling apart. Well, because again, not this is the school stuff, not, but a B means one B on your transcripts means you've eliminated the top 30 schools if that's one of the ones you wanted to go to, which is absolutely crazy. Well, that's also the <laughs> assumption that with people that will make you happy. Right. I, yeah, yeah. There's wonderful research, this group challenged success that found the biggest thing in college success is the uh Basically, the fit between the kid and the school. And, and actually being, uh, Gladwell looked at a lot of research on this, that you were better oh, yes. off being in the top 10% of wherever you went. Then, I mean, I, I got to assume it's really hard to be the kid who is valedictorian and then be in the bottom third at Harvard. Like that's got to be <laughs> yes. not an easy lift, right? It definitely. I mean, Gladwell talks a lot about that. I, yeah. I think in one of his books, he gives the point that someone who went to a school that was far above actually then got so close yeah it was brown versus she wanted to go to maryland honors and she went to brown yes it was so competitive in pre-med that she dropped out of becoming a doctor and she would have been much better off being number one in her class at maryland See, i grew up in brooklyn getting back to my childhood my parents and a lot of the parents were immigrants they were happy i was graduating from high school yeah 
no, there wasn't this pressure in this regard. And I'm glad I had a son who did no work in high school for a while because it convinced me I may know all the right principles, but each kid has their own path to take in life. And you got to figure some of that stuff out for yourself. Look, you I do. give all the credit. I've seen little memes of this. I give all the credit in the world to teachers. I couldn't and wouldn't be a teacher these days because, totally again, think. when I was a kid, if I screwed up in class or whatever, my parents were coming after me. Like the the dynamic used to be yes, parent yes. and teacher on are, are on the same side. Now with the teacher on the kid side, the, the, I mean, the parent on the kid side, the teachers have no hope. I mean, I, I have a friend who could write books on all the stuff. He, he sort of has kept notes and sent me over the years. He's a teacher mm -hmm. on the stuff that people say to like what you said, like, hey, can I just get the grade or can he do the thing? And they're like, look, he skipped six classes in a row and didn't do any of the work I gave. Like, why isn't that a he problem? <laughs> why is that a me problem? And yeah. why why are you yelling at him? Like I you're not teaching, like you're showing him that you're gonna bail him out and try to, you know, figure it out. And then again, this shows up for me, and this is in the workplace. Again, we the business leaders of today inherit this mess. Mm -hmm. And we're the first ones to tell, you know, little Julie or little Steve or otherwise that. They're not perfect. And unfortunately, that, that somehow that's our burden uh, to deal with. And you know what? The sad thing is many of them come prepared, whatever your organization or whatever, that they have really not faced, you know, being disappointed sometimes. Yeah, or, I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm saying your work wasn't good, right? I mean, this was not a good work product. Like You know, when yeah. I was at McLean Hospital, a psychiatric hospital, and I was training director, I would have to prepare some of the uh, trainees saying, you know, the first reports you write, you may see a lot of different corrections I, I make because I feel reports going out or any report is very important because uh, I had this experience. These were people going for, you know, PhDs in psychology. Yes. Felt so disappointed if I was trying in any way to correct them. So red I ink. You can't use red ink anymore. People are traumatized. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, uh, you know. So, so what, what is your emphatic plea to snowplow parents or snowplow leaders? Because, by the way, I think they create the, both the same problems yes. on how to let go and let people deal with it and, and like, like, what could you speak to them? I start asking questions. I start saying, what is your child or let's stick with parenting right now. Okay. What would be your child's experience if you always come in and rescue them or you always come in this way? But I even start with another question. What attributes would you like to see in your child when he or she is 25 or so? And they say independence. <laughs> They may say whatever they say, a lot of times being responsible. And then I'll say, well, let's look at this. If you always rush in, you know, uh, whether it's like my, I told you the story, my sister-in-law coming into if, if kids getting better grades, how would your children describe that when they are young adults? Would it help them to be much more uh, independent or so you get them to think about the future consequences of their action. Yeah. Yes, I will always do that. That's why I ask questions like the empathy questions. How would you like them to describe you? That's when during COVID and many parents and teachers told me they like the question. 15 years from now, your child look is looking right. back. Now they're young adults. How would you like them to describe how you handle this? Because we are models for uh, you know our kids. So I try. I think one of the things I try to do is what do you want to see in your kid at some point? And if it's really crazy, I, I don't know why, you know, I don't know what would be crazy. We have to look at that. But then what are you saying or doing now so that they will 
really, in one sense, develop those attributes you would like to see in them. Now, it's not all of a sudden the parents can have an aha experience. I mean, I, I've seen people in therapy where right. it's months for them to think that way. But it's the same thing in, in a, the business world or with the book I wrote for financial advisors. How do you want your clients to see you during this difficult time? I did a lot of webinars. How do you want your clients to see you? And a lot of them talked about that even though we're not getting together, we could still reach out. And we got into interesting discussions. What do you do? Do you make the call or do you wait for your client to make the call? I know listeners may say that sounds very simple, but we have to think about what do we want to see in a relationship developing, but what are we doing right now? I've written a lot about the first day you meet a client, the first day you you meet a teacher. After just one meeting, how would you like them to describe you? What mm. have you already laid down in that regard? I wrote a paper years ago just looking at the first session or two of therapy and how powerful it is in terms of what you hope to accomplish. And, and so how would that change to someone who's a leader or a new leader and just struggling? Is it the same thing you'd say? I mean, to, to let go. And like, I think one of the things around that people struggle with is like, like mistakes are like, it's like live fire, right? The, <laughs> those mm-hmm. mistakes maybe do have consequences, but I, I again, I, I don't know how you progress without making them. Well, you know, one of the things uh, I, I know you often, because listening to some of the last question you like to ask is, what is a mistake you made? Yeah. Could I bring up something now, though? Okay, you can address that now and we'll save it. Yeah, okay. we're, we're getting there soon anyway. So, Oh, okay. One of the biggest mistakes I made as a beginning therapist and even in my first few years was this. I didn't prepare people for mistakes or setbacks. And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by this. In my office or in my consultations, the strategies we develop to reach a certain goal or whatever it might be, it could be working with parents about their kid, working with teachers about a kid, working with someone in a leadership position. In in my office or my their office, the strategy sounded wonderful. And then I'll tell you what happened. Some of these strategies do not work in quotes as you said, the real world. And I found something very interesting. And it allowed me to change my whole technique. I found that if you believe in a certain strategy, and this sounds not so simple, but that if it doesn't work, people either blamed other people themselves or me. I would have parents say, see, I went out of my way. My kid isn't responding. I had teachers say, I went out of my way. The kid isn't responding. One parent said to me, I bet these strategies work for other parents, but I'm just not a very good parent. Hmm. And this was a turning point for me. And I said, you know what? Your therapist you're not preparing people for mistakes. And so I started to then look at things and I would say, this sounds this sounds like a great strategy, but let's have a backup plan. I know this again sounds so simple, but I didn't do this. Right, but you're talking, because you're talking to people after they made their decisions. Yes. Right, but then I started bringing it up right when we were making it. Right, and, right. and look, there's luck and timing to every decision, right? Yeah. So you're just saying, look, this, this may work and it may be beautiful or it may not. And then what, right? Then there was one other component I want to bring up. Uh, uh, this, I read a book called Rethinking Positive Thinking by Gabriel Udengen. And in that book, which I've used with business leaders and uh, at least this principle, it's again, I keep saying this. Some of this sounds like just common sense, but it really isn't. She common said, sense is not so common. I know. She <laughs> said, you can have goals and strategies, whatever your, your work is. But if you don't consider what the obstacles may be, 
you're going to have a problem. But you can't leave it at that. Because getting back to Viktor Frankl's work, you want people to sense, have personal control. So this is what she did. She calls it mental contrasting. And I really worked with teachers about this, doing it in schools and parents. She would say, look at the goals of strategies. Consider the possible obstacles with, it could be your employees, it could be your kids. And then if these obstacles come up, how are we going to handle it? So what she felt is, she said, if you just think of obstacles, it's all pessimistic. If you just think of goals and not consider possible obstacles, it's a problem. But if you consider that there may be obstacles, but also, and this is the important also, you think about how might I think and then handle this, your attitude and response to things. She has a whole body of research, Bob, that shows this is one of the most effective ways. And, you know, one of the things I didn't do as a beginning therapist is I didn't prepare people. And, you know, I'm writing a lot about how do you prepare people to hear a message they don't want to hear? Well, this is what I said before. This is preparing people for the path, not trying to alter the path to make it easier for the person, right? Like, yeah. You're teaching them coping strategies. If you say to someone, well, if this doesn't work, what are we going to do? You're teaching them coping strategies. Again, resilience is really... Uh, You know, I talked to Stanley McChrystal about this around decision-making, and I've seen this a lot in business, and there's this kind of overlapping. Like he said, when he evaluates a leader's decision, it's not the outcome. It's, It's... the decision they made with the information at that time, right? Exactly. If you decide to drive home drunk and you don't get arrested, that's not a good decision, right? Oh, it right. just worked. It just worked out <laughs> positively right. that time for you. So, uh, so many of these things, if what we did on Tuesday would have looked as a hero and it doesn't work on Wednesday, and then we get a total false sense of, you know, that we're doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing, not that there are winds of fate that that, that I, blow along this. Yeah, I love that comment because what it brings up, I can't tell you how, how many people I've worked with over the years where I've had to say, again, around a specific situations, you know, you did the best you could with the information you had at this particular point. Right. And that's when people who sometimes still are moaning and groaning about a certain decision they made, but you speak to them about it. And at the time, it seemed like a good decision, but then you have to help them to move forward. And again, I said, what what is really therapy? You're looking at, you know, people who are anxious, depressed or whatever. Many come in with an image of themselves that is very low. Yeah. And you can't just say cheer up. You really (laughs) have to look at it with them, but you have to have them feel empowered. I, 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 I remember Southwest Airlines used to talk about this, Herb Kelleher, like they didn't do these large strategic plans. They kind of walked through scenario planning. If this happens, what might we do? If this happens, what might we do? Like, because they're like, look, what's the the five year? Like, it's great, but all this stuff is going to change. I'm more interested in how we react. Competitor goes bankrupt, fuel doubles, fuel falls in half. And then they talk about what they were going to do in each of those cases. Yeah. You know, you mentioned schools before. I started saying to teachers, prepare kids for mistakes first day of school. I had one teacher who... Except the system doesn't reward that, so they can't really do that. No, but, but, I, yeah, but I had one teacher who actually got into a discussion, and this was at a middle school, the first day of school saying, you know, if I call on you, how would you like me to call on you? And then she said, if someone doesn't know the answer, how should the rest of the class respond? Because she had a class the year before where kids would giggle if a kid didn't know the answer. And my feeling is, I, uh, over the years, one of the things I learned, look at the obstacles to being resilient and discuss them in advance almost as much as you could prepare. That's yeah. why I've been writing, uh, as I say, a lot about preparing people uh, for your your message. 
I've been in meetings with business leaders where you talk, they are talking to staff and you could predict after three minutes, the staff is defensive. Yeah. And I, I know that's not your style <laughs> at all, but I started looking I'm very- sure I've made people defensive. Well, we look, I'm <laughs> sure I probably some of my patients <laughs> in that regard, but there's such wonderful research, a whole other topic, which I've been looking at, the impact of positive emotions on problem solving, on activating parts of the brain that have to do with decision-making. And I've really been adding that to how do you create positive emotions? Uh, part of it came from a wonderful article in the Harvard Business Review about the emotional culture of an organization. And I said, you could take organization. They talked about business groups and put, make it schools or whatever. And they talked about this. They said there are organizations, they call them organizations of anger, fear. I, the one I love best was Companionate, Companion and ATE, organizations where everyone really wants to be, they feel supported. And what they mentioned, and this is something I emphasize to teachers who say, I'm so busy. They mentioned that the importance of micro moments, that a smile on the part of a leader, a brief comment, and they give wonderful examples. I wrote two of my website articles were based on that research. And that's when I started saying, when people said, I want to be a charismatic adult, and some teachers say that, but I don't have the time. I said, wait till you hear some of this research. There's research to show that if a teacher at the beginning of the day, there's a whole body of research called positive greetings at the door, that there are certain behaviors a teacher can do right when a class starts that leads to greater motivation, fewer discipline problems. And these are all these micro moments. I, I mean, it's a whole other topic I've become fascinated by that yeah. it doesn't mean you have to spend hours and hours people will remember these micro moments. If they're negative, they're, you know, uh, they're uh, not as microaggressions as we know they're called, yeah, but microaffirmations. See, I'm running on, uh, but for me, it's create that environment then where you will be that charismatic adult where people will feel comfortable learning from you. So be authoritative, not authoritarian. Right. All right. Well, you, you already answered the last question. So we got that. So I'm curious. Uh, so where can people find out uh, more about you and your work? And I think you have an assessment that people can take, right? Uh, well, there was on my website years ago, it wasn't okay. in any way standardized. There's for, it's like 10 examples you may face with your kid. Okay. Which ones were mostly to, you know, being resilient. Uh, but, and that's on my website. Uh, the best places uh, nowadays, my website, drdrrobertbrooks.com. There's like over 200 articles posted now on that. Many of the things we talked about today are, you know, on that being that charismatic adult, whether it's an organization, a parent, a teacher, whomever. All right. Well, Dr. Brooks, thank you for uh, joining us and, and talking about how to build resilience. I think. I think everyone would agree that it's needed now, uh, today more than ever. I agree. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Bob. It was a pleasure for sharing these ideas. All right. You can learn more about Dr. Brooks on the episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode or the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show and the content. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. 
I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.